This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Ever been in love? We can all recall user experiences we admire, but do we truly love them? Emotional engagement is an enormously powerful driver in ensuring product success. One group of user experience designers, Disney's Imagineers, knows this and understands how to build user experiences that people not only engage with, but truly love. Mike Atherton presents a light-hearted and inspirational presentation, aiming to reconnect us with the passions that brought us here. We love the work we do. Let's just make sure our users love it too. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. So hi, I'm Mike. Um, I'm from London. And let's give this a whirl, shall we? Love. Exciting and new. <laughs> it's a many splendid thing. It's a battlefield and a losing game. But what is love anyway? Perhaps you're more Ben and Jerry's than Hagen does. Maybe you'd gladly mortgage your children for an iPod touch, but wouldn't be seen dead with a Zune. How would you make Sophie's choice? Should I rob you of your Twitter or your Facebook? When we talk about the love we have for the Apples and Nintendos and even the WordPresses of the world, we're talking about emotional engagement. Now, I make user experiences for what some have called a living, uh, most recently with the BBC. I'm fascinated in finding out what separates mere respect from true love. And what's love got to do with it? Well, for one thing, designing a product for emotional engagement could be the difference between launching a smart car and a Volvo, a Netflix and a Blockbuster, a Firefox and a, well, nobody ever tattooed themselves with the other guy's logo. <laughs> emotional engagement is an instant bond with our audience, so they feel our product or service is as much theirs, and I believe that emotional engagement aids the design process itself. But before we get to all that, I hope you'll let me indulge in a spot of hero worship, because it strikes me as I zip through my mental Rolodex of fetishes that there are a group of architects and designers and engineers building user experiences that enjoy that high emotional engagement that's almost like being in love. Maybe if we take a walk through their work, there are lessons to learn about putting a little heart into our own. Now, they may not have the transient cool of today's technorati, but they've been working tirelessly, their brand of magic, for over 50 years. And like the kind of experiences we all architect today, it all started with a mouse. I'm speaking, of course, of Disney's Imagineers. Now, I should stress that I'm not now, nor have I ever been, one of them. I'm merely a fan, a, an evangelist, a mouseketeer. Around 1950, Walt Disney uh, was in Griffith Park. He was sitting on a bench and eating peanuts. He'd taken his daughters to the merry-go-round, and as he sat watching them play, he thought, wouldn't it be... Well, can't do the accent, but... Um, would, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if... <laughs> Um, 
Uh, you know, I'm just going to abandon the whole excellent thing. If, the whole, if there was a place that the whole family could enjoy themselves at the same time. Well, in that single thought lay the genesis of Disneyland and what would be the discipline of Imagineering. Now, Walt's studio was alive with animators and model makers and scenery painters and special effects technicians and writers and composers and lyricists. And it was from these ranks that the Imagineers came. These men and women worked tirelessly to design and build some of the best-loved user experiences anywhere. Things like Pirates of the Caribbean, the Haunted Mansion, the Jungle Cruise, Spaceship Earth, Earth, Space Mountain, Splash Mountain, and yes, the one with that damn song. <laughs> Guided by Walt's vision and a culture of idea sharing, uh, experimentation, and all-out guts, they took their filmmaking magic into uncharted territory and actually used their lack of experience to their advantage. As Marty Sklar puts it, our greatest asset was ignorance. We didn't know we could fail. Now, at this point in the presentation, I'd like to introduce you to my co-host. So let's just unclip this little guy. In fact, Disneyland was a hard sell. This wasn't just a case of an animator going into the theme park business. There was no theme park business. Disneyland was a world first. And what separates a theme park from the Coney Island fairgrounds that came before it, well, we would call that user experience. Walt wanted visitors to step out of their own reality and into a movie. But this dream needed cold, hard cash. And the bean counters, the bean counters, sorry, saw nothing but problems. Disney's folly, they called it. How would he operate it year round? Were the tiny details a needless extravagance? Customers won't care. Stick to what you know. If you build it, they won't come. Well, one weekend, Walt collared a storyboard artist, this guy, Herb Ryman. Herbie, he said, I'm doing the accent again, aren't I? I need to show these, these bankers exactly what we mean. We need to get them excited. Well, with Walt on his shoulder all weekend, Herb's renderings captured the essence of Disneyland. Now, not based on any blueprints, no wireframes to work from here, just the swirl of ideas in Walt Disney's head. Those drawings that Herb Ryman worked on that day started a, a visual culture that still leads Imagineering even today. We all know that it doesn't really matter how nice you make your functional spec documents or even your wireframes. The client always gets excited over the pretty pictures. Now, in my own work, um, I'll often visualize early project discussions. And these, are, these are not carefully thought through IA masterpieces. In, indeed, many of them would fall apart completely if you look at them funny. But really, that's the point. 
having some visual meat to rip into like cynical raptors. It focuses debate and clarifies whether we all have the same broad vision in our heads. That instant connection to artwork isn't just about understanding. It's about getting fired up. It's emotional engagement. So when Imagineering comes and builds a new attraction, they don't start with blueprints or project plans. No one ever falls in love with a Hobson spigot or a gangly wrench. This isn't yet about the structural. It's about the dream. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we dump the wireframes and use cases and functional specs. We still need detail after all. I just think they're not what opens purse strings or even heart strings. Since Disney married Pixar in 2006, John Lasseter, this guy, has helped Imagineering maintain their creative culture. Both Pixar and Imagineering have strong principles for creative management. Creative people have control over every stage of an idea's development. Now, I don't just mean visual designers here. Product ideas may move between disciplines, be it story development or architecture or engineering. The trick is to create cross-discipline teams who bring different insights and work well together, refining good ideas into great ones. Daily show and tells, no matter how rough, help people get over any embarrassment when showing incomplete work and promote healthy competition. Everyone has the freedom to talk to everyone else, regardless of department or rank. There are no proper channels to go through. Managers aren't always the first to know, and sometimes it's nice to walk into a meeting and be surprised. Training courses and learning lunches help teams from disciplines and inter uh, different disciplines to interact and appreciate one another's skills. And how many times have we sunk hundreds of hours into a project only to move on and try and forget it the moment it's out the door? Well, instead, list the top five things you'd do again and the top five things you wouldn't, the roses and the thorns. In the 1960s, Bert Bill Burnback of the advertising agency DDB transformed the industry when he invented the creative team, specifically the teaming of a copywriter and an art director to work on an ad simultaneously. At the interactive agency Sapient, you know them, uh, they've adapted this practice and are pairing information architects with visual designers. The complement of skills ensures balance between structure and aesthetic at the BBC. Anyone with a dream can work up their idea and present it to a panel of experts who might throw the odd brick bat at them, but only so they can go back to the drawing board and refine their idea. It's a great way of funneling the creative juices from fertile minds, which sounded a little better when I wrote it. Um, so by developing user experience in small cross-discipline groups, organizations like these and like uh, Pixar and Imagineering they learn and succeed by dreaming and doing. Walt wanted every inch of Disneyland to feel like part of a story, to have a strong narrative uh, driving the layout and architecture and design and service. Things that happen in view of the guests are on stage. Park operations are backstage. Staff are cast members, and they wear costumes, not uniforms. 
Two-Face facades inspired by movie backlots set the scene, be it a broken down Hollywood hotel or a Wild West railroad or Annapurna base camp or even an 18-story geodesic sphere. They call it architectural storytelling. The Hollywood Tower Hotel is dressed every inch to be a 1930s grand hotel, now rather down on its luck. The base camp at Expedition Everest tells of a yeti hunt through news clippings and documentary photographs and artifacts. At the Harambe village in Animal Kingdom, you'll still find the outlines of the old city walls around the Portuguese fortress that once stood there. Engravings commemorate the political events of uh, that shook the village in 1961. And yet none of it is real. There was no fortress, no events of 1961. It's just part of the story-on-story -story layering that gives each experience its rich tapestry. Now, over at the BBC, we're revolutionizing the way that we tell stories online. The BBC, is, as you probably know, makes thousands of hours of television and radio programming widely regarded as some of the best programming in the world. Oh, and are you being served? Yet, our online efforts have met with mixed success. Static websites dot the landscape like silos, disconnected from the wider BBC universe. For example, you might like this man, Stephen Fry, and some of you may even know that he was in this show, Blackadder, and he had a comedy partnership with this other guy who you may know from this show. And he also did something about the Gutenberg Press for the BBC. He suffers from bipolar disorder, which he made a program about. And most recently, he made another series where he took a trip around these our United States. In that series, he visited Kentucky and uh, Hawaii and Nevada, where he visited one of these uh, brothel, as did this guy, Louis Theroux, in another BBC series, which tells us, if nothing else, that our documentary filmmakers are getting one over on us. But for the longest time, there was no way to make those connections or follow those journeys. We only retold on air the same stories that were first told online. But now, thanks to minds immeasurably superior to mine, we're seeing those rich relationships exposed so we may follow our own narrative paths. If you want to see how Michael Palin became a comedy god as part of Monty Python and then transitioned into a travel correspondent visiting the Sahara, which was reputedly created by climate change, which is an issue that this guy wasn't so big on, but this guy says he will be, well then go on, follow that camel, because you don't need us to explicitly tell you that story. There's a combination of approaches here. The BBC Topics Project is a way of bringing together all our stories on a particular theme, lifting them out of their silos and making aboutness a form of navigation. And then there are the more detailed domain modeling efforts, which explicitly define the relationships between our programs and people and events and topics and even our recipes. These are our voyages into the semantic web. And it's a lot like love. It's rather straightforward in theory, but somewhat messy in practice. Okay, so non-linear dynamic narratives aren't exactly like theme park attractions, but like with the Imagineers, uh, our design should be led by the stories we want to tell. Disneyland was designed to be an unbroken user experience. Over to my co-host for a moment. 
the foot of Main Street, about where you're sitting, is the plaza. The plaza, or the hub, is the heart of Disneyland. Shooting out from here, like the four cardinal points of the compass, Disneyland is divided into four cardinal realms. Adventureland, Tomorrowland, Fantasyland, and Frontierland. The hub and spoke, oh, excuse me, a hub and spoke model created different distinct lands that didn't visually compete. It allowed for very controlled traffic flow, which paid, paved the way for some very filmic spectacle. When you first enter Disneyland, you do so via a railway station, giving you a sense of arrival at this happy place. At this point, you still can't see into the park until you enter under a stone underpass. And emerging from the darkness, you find yourself staring straight down 19th century Main Street, USA, with the fairy tale Sleeping Beauty Castle ahead in the distance. It's a deliberate piece of stage management, transporting you from the real world into Disneyland. Now, the castle itself serves the same purpose as the hat in the Hollywood studios, or the golf ball at Epcot, or the tree of life in the animal kingdom. These huge and iconic structures serve as a navigation anchor, signaling the hub from which visitors can spoke out into different directions. And they call these proud directions weenies. I kid you not. Uh, like us, the Imagineers understood that user journeys should avoid distraction, so they worked to prevent visual intrusion, which would break the illusion of each distinctly themed land. Still led by the movie-making metaphor, Imagineers designed smooth cross-dissolves from one land into the next. In Florida, the journey from Main Street to Adventureland gradually blends themed foliage and color and sound and music and architecture. The Crystal Palace restaurant fuses the American colonial with the British colonial style of India and Asia, providing an ideal transition between the two lands. The Big Thunder Mountain in Florida is modeled after the red rock of Monument Valley, but in Disneyland, it's based on the striped hoodoos of Utah's Bryce Canyon. And why? Well, because in the smaller footprint of Disneyland, the cartoon-like Candy Mountain is better suited to peer over storybook Fantasyland. This attention to detail is everywhere. Adapting the filmmaking convention of the long and medium and close-up shots into the park design. Long shots are done through forced perspective, a trick where the buildings are built progressively smaller as they recede into the distance in order to appear larger than they are. It's a it allows for a grand view within a, a very small space. The medium shots are the building facades with theming that turns an ordin ordinary ride queue into a bustling spaceport or an automotive test center. And then the close-ups provide the subliminal detail. In keeping with the lived-in look, the Imagineers design signs, doorknobs, light fixtures, trash cans, menus, concession stands, and wallpaper, all supporting the attraction's backstory. Walt and his brother Roy took their first major creative and financial risk back in 1928 when they released their first cartoon 
with synchronized sound. They did it again with Snow White in 1937, the first time that the critics had used the term Disney's folly, claiming that there was no market for a full-length animated feature and it would never make back its $1.5 million budget. So despite the success of Snow White, by the time Disneyland opened in 1955, the company was on the brink of bankruptcy. The park was their biggest gamble yet for much higher financial stakes. Oh, it goes back so far at different cost estimates. Uh, one time it was three and a half million, and then I kept fooling around with it, and it got up to seven and a half million. And I kept fooling around a little more, and pretty soon it was 12 and a half. And I think when we opened Disneyland, it was $17 million. But Walt wasn't afraid to take risks. He made a career focus out of an investment in new technology, from those early sound cartoons to surround sound, like Fantasia, to the first monorail in America, to a new kind of animation that would bring three-dimensional life to the stories he wanted to tell. We created a new type of animation, so new that we had to invent a new name for it. Uh, uh, ooh, uh, 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 audio animatronics? Right, audio animatronics. This canny businessman avoided paying for advertising by using his TV show as an extended commercial for the park. He was quick to capitalize on merchandising, and having just lost money on Pinocchio and Fantasia, it's no accident that Sleeping Beauty Castle took its cue from the next film on the drawing board. Despite this expanding media empire, he was driven not by money but by the pursuit of quality. In fact, Walt didn't like the idea of corporations very much, recognizing how much harder it is to maintain clarity of vision and get things done within a large organization. So he repeatedly looked to carve small, creative niches out of his larger structure, the most notable of which was Wed Enterprises, known today as Walt Disney Imagineering. Now these days, entrepreneurial risk-taking is second nature in our business, our medium of choice has matured to a point where the building blocks of innovation, APIs and web services and open source, are readily and cheaply available. And even the teams to help us assemble them are never far away. One evening, Chef Niall Harbison was lying in bed and came up with an idea for a Twitter-based recipe application. This morning, the next morning, he sent out the following tweet. Need a smart developer who... He's Irish, by the way who thinks that they could build a simple... That's probably racist, isn't it? Uh, who, who, who build a, a simple app in one day. Cash or profit share paid, depending on preference. Big idea. Well, 17 replies and just $300 later, would you believe, Twesipi.com launched, offering recipe suggestions for things that you have in your fridge. The product launch came exactly five days after Niall had first thought of the idea. More sophisticated services are still relatively cheap to develop. We're fortunate to live in a time and work in an industry where product development cycles can be measured in days and costs are in the low thousands, not the umpteen millions. Yet we're also in a worldwide scramble to build the next big thing, with everyone borrowing from the same toolbox. We can, we can afford to take risks and to innovate we just can't afford not to. In 1969, Marty Sklar, the guy we heard from earlier, had been asked to pitch an attraction concept to RCA. 
at the time making strides into personal computers. Marty and John Hench, another Imagineer, came up with a ride through a computer thinking that might press RCA's buttons. Now, the pitch went well among the lower ranks of RCA staff, but then the client hit them with an Uber client that hadn't been involved in any of the discussions today. So I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. The pitch to RCA's head honcho was a bit of a disaster. He didn't see what was so exciting about touring the guts of a computer. So the Disney boys went back to the drawing board uh, and decided to revive an idea that had fired their own passions years earlier. RCA could buy into it if they wanted to, and they did. Putting $10 million into an attraction called Space Mountain, today one of the principal icons of Walt Disney World and Disneyland. It was a valuable lesson in trusting their instincts. Of course, they needed to design something that guests will enjoy, but this is, after all, what they do for a living, what they've done now for 50 years. So they really should be able to do it and make it user-centered without having to stop and solicit opinion from guinea pigs every five minutes or being held hostage to the whims of clients or focus groupies. They are the recognized experts. They have the experience to know what their customers want, and so they build it, then they test it in the field. Now, in our own industry, whether we're talking about the YouTubes and Twitters and Digs and even Googles of our generation, or the Apples and Microsofts of eons ago, we can see that true originality, true change, comes from a clarity of vision and a confidence of purpose. I'll go out on a limb here and claim that none of the websites that have set the world on fire over the past 10 years was made by an agency working for a client or even by a particularly large project team. When you look at the poster children of Web 2.0, you see the same story coming up again and again. Two or three guys working in their basement to develop an idea that was useful to them personally and putting a lot of love into their new baby that somehow transferred to their first flush of users who loved and nurtured the product just as much. I propose that those products and the love users have for them could only come from that working environment, free of corporate politics, free of client appeasement, free of iterative compromise and watering down, the death of a thousand cuts that projects developed in larger organizations seem destined to suffer. Now, it might appear somewhat unorthodox of me to contrast the working practices of a couple of teenagers in their parents' Palo Alto basement with a multi-billion juggernaut like Disney. But Walt Disney Imagineering, the small niche carved out of that larger studio by Walt himself, was designed to be just that think tank of talented enthusiasts free to dream their dreams. Sometimes the first idea isn't always the best. Now, perhaps Disney's biggest change from concept to execution was Epcot, or to give it its proper name, the sciencey one with the big golf ball. But who knows what Epcot stands for? Wait, I'll let Walt tell you the best part of his plans for Florida. The most exciting, the far, the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it EPCOT, spelled E-P-C-O-T, Experimental Prototype Community 
of tomorrow. Here it is in larger scale. Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? Well, we're convinced we must start with the public need. And the need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land and building a special kind of new community. First, the area of business and commerce. Next, the high-density apartment housing. Then, the broad greenbelt and recreation lands. And finally, the low-density, neighborhood, residential streets. In other parts of the country, a community the size of this prototype could become part of an entire city complex composed of many such communities, planned and built a few miles apart. In Disney World, about 20,000 people will actually live in Epcot. Their homes will be built in ways that permit ease of change so that new products may continuously be demonstrated. Their schools will welcome new ideas so that everyone who grows up in Epcot will have skills in pace with today's world. That's the starting point for our experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And now, where do we go from these preliminary plans and sketches? Well, a project like this is so vast in scope that no one company alone can make it a reality. But if we can bring together the technical know-how of American industry and the creative imagination of the Disney organization, I'm confident we can create right here in Disney World a showcase to the world of the American free enterprise system. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge. A once in a lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. Well, four weeks later, Walt Disney was dead. Now, if you've ever been to Epcot, you'll know it's not a city of the future. After Walt died, much of the company's imaginative risk-taking died with him. Still, the public wouldn't let Epcot lie, and Disney knew it would have to do something. The result was a theme park focused on science and innovation and corporate sponsorship, representing the spirit of the original vision. In 1982, the Epcot Center opened, located at what would have been the heart of Walt's Progress City. Actually, the story of Epcot reminds me of the one about husband and wife team Katerina Fake and Stuart Butterfield, 
struggling to develop their massively multiplayer online game back in 2002. Running out of money and fearing that the end was nigh, they made a difficult decision to ditch the game and focus instead on its best feature, sharing photos with other players. Well, that feature morphed into a site called Flickr. And what makes this story interesting to me is that Fake says, had, had, we, ha, had we sat down, I won't even try, and said, let's start a photo application, we would have failed. We were stupid and naive, which turned out to be a wonderful thing. Like the early Imagineers, ignorance was their greatest asset. They didn't know they could fail. Disneyland was propelled by Walt's frustration with movie making. Once a film was made, it was fixed, unchanging forever. But Disneyland, he said, would never be completed. It would always be evolving and revolving, giving people new reasons to come back. He had um, an apartment built above the fire station. On weekends, he'd come down and stay in the park, chatting to guests and finding out just how they'd make Disneyland better. Walt called it plussing, a never-ending cycle of iterative improvement. Over the years, the parks have seen different attractions come and go. In fact, the list of the past attractions is easily as long as those still present. Gone, but not forgotten by the fans who still speak of them fondly. Come on. Our Imagineering legends have consistently acted as creative leaders. When it comes to testing, they're like the drunk with the lamppost, looking more for support than illumination. Wow. Controversial, perhaps, to say that product design should be led by the shared vision of the project team, only involve the opinions of users where necessary, and really, then only when you've already gone ahead and built what you wanted to build anyway. And BBC iPlayer is a service that lets you wa watch or listen to BBC TV and radio shows online, provided you live in the UK. The project first kicked off around 2004 and was mired in... in political trials and dogma and rights negotiation and changes in technology platform. It was costing millions in public money and hadn't so much as a beta site. And then this guy, Anthony Rose, came along and brought a touch of Silicon Valley to the mahogany corridors of the BBC. That's not strictly accurate, but it makes for a better story. As creator of the online media group, uh, he fast-tracked the development of iPlayer and instigated a bullish release cycle. In Rose's view, real artists ship fortnightly, every two weeks. The idea is that if something goes out and it's a bit rubbish, it's not the end of the world because in two weeks it'll be better. Again, we see the imagineering practice of a small, self-contained -cre self creative team carved from a larger organization and intent on getting things done. As Walt said, you don't design for yourself, you design for what you know people want. Yet the way we as an industry build products has brought a shift in the way that we can engage users in product development. We can let change happen in the wild. We can let the audience do our plussing. By being transparent about the product architectures, by be making it as much about the API as the UI, the things we make can evolve as users build new services on top, using our building blocks to weave new stories. Not that you can weave with building blocks. To date, 
Walt Disney Imagineering has built 11 Disney theme parks, a town, two cruise ships, dozens of resort hotels, water parks, shopping centers, sports complexes, and entertainment venues worldwide. They have over 28 patents registered. Their names adorn the windows of Main Street, and the legacy they've created in Disneyland and its spiritual sons will outlive them in the way that legacies do. People have loved so much, their work so much, that they bought the t-shirt. If only the work we did had such staying power, such permanency, not just on stage, but in the hearts and minds of our audience. We spend months of our lives pouring our blood, sweat, tears, and other bodily fluids into the things that we build, and we think ourselves lucky if they see their second birthday. It's time and effort and brain juice. We could have spent writing our novel or building a school or bringing enlightenment to the culturally impoverished. So why do we do what we do? I mean, information architecture seems rather a specific area of study, scarcely the thing that people just fall into as they might with management consultancy or petty crime, to name but one. I think we have touched on the answer. I hope I'm preaching to the converted. I believe that we, all of us, want to make user experiences that are beautiful, lovable in their structure, in their execution, in the stories they tell. Walt Disney said that Imagineering is not a specific discipline, but more a state of mind. We can learn from these creative philosophies passed down through the years to expand our horizons by collaborating cross-culture, sticking the spoon of user experience into every layer of the web application trifle before scrambling it into an eaten mess. To understand the stories we want to tell and to have the sense of purpose, the courage to cut the ties and let our babies breathe and grow in the open air and not in the incubator. Our carousel of progress keeps turning as we sally forth into that great big beautiful tomorrow of the web's evolution. One where a free and open sharing of information will be underpinned by things we can point at and by relationships we can define succinctly and unambiguously. This cannot simply be an academic exercise in, in classification and order, but a means of weaving new stories through a common language. As the journalist Sidney Harris once wrote, the real danger is not that computers will begin to think like men, but that men will begin to think like computers. Or as the Imagineers understand it, it's not the size of your slide rule that's important, but how it's used. Our stock in trade is the functional specification, but shouldn't we also consider the emotional specification? How do we want our users to feel? How do we want them to think of us? Do we want to be the Firefox or the Internet Explorer, the Mustang or the Camry, the Diana or the Camilla? We must be bold and imaginative, to dream, to believe, to dare, and to do, to think outside the boxes and the arrows, to be passionate yet infectious, but in the good way, to create experiences that people fall in love with, to consider the whole of the web as our own Disneyland, stitching in quality, consistency, and excitement from the long shots to the close-ups, an unbroken user journey moving seamlessly from one adventure to the next. It's a small world after all. Thank you.
couple of minutes for questions if anybody has any. Or this lunch. Yeah. Exactly, and, and that's, sorry, should I repeat the question for the tape? Um, how do we convince our project sponsors and our clients to let us work in a collaborative cross-culture way that um, follows the Imagineering trend, I guess? Um, to me, I, I think you only need to really look at the things which are truly successful. When I've, I've worked in agencies for 10 years building microsites for microsites for vodka brands and what have you, and just destroying little pieces of my soul every time. I mean, what is the point? It, this, these things take so much time and effort, and, and it's disproportionate to their value in a lot of cases. And yet, on the flip side of that, you have something like a Twitter or a, or a YouTube or something, which you know, is developed in a, in a very kind of free and open way. It's developed to be something that's quite single purpose, that's not um, watered down in that way. And, and because of that, it's phenomenally successful. So I guess in answer to your question, I mean, you, you only need to look at the things which those clients often aspire to be, that they often want to piggyback on or bottom feed from. And, and, and if they actually want to be the change agents in the industry, then, then this is the environment to do it. Yes. Chris, right? Yeah. My hero. <laughs> I want your job. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Epcot was um, a bit of an apology, really, um, from, from what was a strange uh, dream for an animator to have, to, to start to get into the civic planning, planning game. Um, and it's interesting to see the legacy that the park has become, that there is some tenets of that. And not only that, but if you take a trip to the town of uh, Step, not Stepford, but uh, Celebration in Florida, um, you can see, uh, you know, a, a vision of, well, a reality of, of what the Epcot vision might have been, which is a genuine town that looks like you're living in Disneyland to a certain extent. Thanks. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.